Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. And I'm uh, fortunate, so fortunate, to be joined by our good friend, Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, what's up? Um, not much, Stuart. Um, I, yeah, not much. How are you? <laughs> uh, f- I'm, I'm fine. Yep. Ask a stupid question. Get a stupid answer. No, I'm doing good. Actually, uh, I'm doing uh, quite good because I'm really excited about today's episode. And we'll get into that. But first, there's a little bit going on. Uh, I want to start off. Actually, we have some breaking news right now. Hold on. This is this is just in and uh, check the box, Jason, on that song. But uh, uh, we have a co or a, um, uh, uh, a brood ten a brood ten update, um, and and that is so uh, uh, behind the scenes here, uh, listeners. So I do a lot of work. Uh, basically, I just listen to the awesome team every now and again. Though what I will do is I'll say, you know what? No, I'm going to exert a little bit of uh, leverage here. And so one of those leverage points was I really wanted to talk with Jessica Ware about the Brood 10 cicadas. And the team was like, you know, it's not really Great Lakes. I mean, she seems great, but whatever. And I was like, no, no, no. We're going to talk to Jessica Ware, rising superstar. And I have really fond memories of the last Brood 10 uh, uh, breeding cycle in 2004 because um, my wife was in law school and I came up and went to a bunch of concerts and heard the cicada, whatever. So, all right, we're going to do it. And so we had this big episode, episode, uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. I don't, I don't know numbers, a couple weeks ago. And um, she was great. Jessica was awesome. And since then, she's been on like CBS News and NPR. So I was right, total rock star. Um, and Brew 10 in West Lafayette, Indiana, I, my kids and I, we got all excited about it, uh, all fired up. We got like our little bug boxes and our magnifying glasses, and we learned about the fungus that makes their butt disappear and like all of this stuff. And we didn't get any Brew 10 <laughs> at all where I was. Um, and I, I'm reminded of that today because our annual cicadas are, are out in force, and I had to change my podcast location or recording setup a little bit. Otherwise, it would just be... Uh, so that is the uh, Brood 10 update. Total bust. So I exerted a lot of leverage um, for basically nothing, um, which is my managerial style. And like, so. No, that's not accurate. It's not. It's, I mean, maybe like your plan locally, but um, people learned lots of great stuff from that show. They did. And Brood 10 was a big deal in lots of places, yes. just not here. And Lafayette is outside of the Great Lakes Basin, too, so. I mean, technically speaking, did y'all have much Brew Ten action up in um, uh, whatever city in Michigan you're in? I can't remember the name of it. So, 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 um, it's more the annual ones that are that are going now too. Which I actually said the other day, like, don't ever make me live in a place that doesn't have cicadas because I love them. All right. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. <laughs> and the one other place, the one other place where I've exerted leverage. Um, other than all the other places that I'm sure everybody would tell me about that I, I don't perceive as exerting because that's privilege, right? Um, is the, uh, the Lakeys, our annual award show, um, which is maybe the best idea I've ever had. It was, it was uh, borrowed from another podcast, but that's okay. Uh, so at the end of the year, we're going to have an award ceremony that we're calling possibly not the least prestigious Great Lakes related awards show that there is. And it's going to be the Lakeys, but we need your help, listener. We need you to submit nominations in categories ranging from like science communication 
education piece of the year, you know, scientific research uh, of the year. Um, what else is in there? Sandwich of the year, of course, Great Lakes news of the year, and a couple of big ones, uh, Great Lakes animal of the year and Great Lakes non-animal of the year or some other big ones. And so um, those are things that aren't animals, Carolyn, is, uh, you're giving me a, a, a befuddled look. Um, yep, we want people to vote on the Great Lakes non-animal of the year. Uh, and so anyway, uh, to do that, what you're going to do is you're, uh, you look in the show notes. We got the link, but, but you can go to bit.ly.com slash Lakeys21. That's L-A-K-I-E-S 21 and submit your nominations. We've already gotten quite a few nominations, some really great, some really interesting in by a variety of definitions of that term. All and, interesting. Uh, yes. All interesting. Yes. Um, and so uh, go, but go to bit.ly.com slash Lakeys21 and submit um, and uh, get fired up about the Lakeys once the award ceremony is here later in the year, probably, probably November, December. Uh, we'll go from that. Um, so anyway, that's the big news up at the front. We got breaking news. We got Lakeys. And my understanding is we also have a Great Lakes factoid. So if I can figure out the thing, it's a Great Lakes factoid, a Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Carolyn, you have a Great Lakes factoid for us. What you got? I do. So our guest today that we'll be bringing on in just a second is from the Wisconsin Maritime Museum. And so my Great Lakes factoid is that there are between 6,000 and there are definitely over 6,000 shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. Um, and there are some estimates that they are as high as 10,000 shipwrecks in the Great Lakes, which is um, both fascinating and a little bit sad and just something that um, captures the imaginations of many people. So that's my factoid. That is a really interesting factoid, six to 10,000. I think that would be surprising to a lot of people, not to a lot of people, um, but there's just a lot of shipping, right? A lot yeah. of shipping. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Well, let's actually then we'll jump right into our guest because um, she does a, a museum or she doesn't do a museum. She's the executive director of a museum uh, related to <laughs> maritime history you could if you wanted to call it a, a maritime history museum um uh so we'll welcome on our guests right after this little bit of transitional music our guest today is kathy green kathy is the executive director of the wisconsin maritime museum in manitowoc wisconsin kathy how are you today Hey, I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm really good. I'm so glad to be talking to someone who works for a, a museum generally, and, and more specifically a maritime museum, which is not something that I initially uh, would associate with the area. I'm learning more and more, though, thanks to this podcast and other things. So I'm, I'm not as surprised as I would have been a year ago, uh, but I'm doing great. <laughs> yeah. So let's actually start with the basics. Like, uh, So you're at the Wisconsin Merit Maritime Museum. How did you get there? How do you get into that kind of work exactly? Yeah, well, you know, uh, coming here to the Maritime Museum is a culmination of Oh, gosh, over 25 years in uh, the museum and uh, maritime heritage field. I've been working for over 20 years here in the Great Lakes, uh, mostly as a marine archaeologist uh, and researcher studying shipwrecks here in the Great Lakes, uh, which is one of our, of course, featured um, cultural re maritime cultural resources. Right. Uh, so working with telling those stories, uh, whether it's drafting shipwrecks on the bottom or you know, putting together an exhibit in the museum. It's all kind of related. So what do you mean by drafting shipwrecks on the bottom? Oh, yeah. So 
so as an archaeologist and an underwater archaeologist, um, you know, you're got, you use different tools than if you were excavating a site on land, right? Uh, but the same principles apply. You're looking to, uh, to document uh, what a site looks like, how it's uh, laid out across the bottom, uh, and what it contains. So to do that, you can use all kinds of tools. You can go old school with a pencil and a piece of waterproof paper and a uh, measuring tape, uh, which is how we always start. Uh, but then uh, the really cool thing nowadays is you can use all these high-tech tools like uh, digital photography, photogrammetry. So you can get representations of exactly what a shipwreck looks like underwater. So you don't necessarily have to dive to you know, 200 feet, if that's not your thing, uh, we can gather that information and pass it on to you, uh, the citizens, whether it's in uh, an online um, feature, whether it's in an exhibit, whether it's in a publication, uh, there's lots of ways to get this information out. So you mean drafting like hard school, like with the T-square and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's awesome. It is it is the most fun part of of what you do as a marine archaeologist. Uh, a lot of the work comes in with historical research ahead of time, and then with processing data afterwards. But yeah, you're you're have your scuba gear on, and you're down there as a team uh, mapping your little piece of a shipwreck, and you're taking measurements, you're creating sketches, and then you bring that back uh, to the lab and and draw it up so you have that scale representation. No kidding. And you've done this kind of throughout the Great Lakes. Are there any like cool place that where's the coolest place you've been, I guess? Oh, gosh. So uh, I've worked for the state of Wisconsin here uh, for a number of years. And then I worked uh, for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, the National Marine Sanctuary Program uh, up on Lake Huron. But because that program's linked to a whole series of sites around the country and around the world, um, I did get the opportunity to, to dive some other places. So uh, diving out uh, in the Pacific and the Northwest Hawaiian Islands and Midway Atoll uh, and, and all those places out there, that, that, that was pretty amazing. Yeah. The Great Lakes are fantastic, but uh, it's hard to, to be, you know, the, the natural aquarium of uh, a marine protected area in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah. That's fair. I mean, we, we, we sometimes give grief to our Sea Grant colleagues, but that's totally fair. <laughs> although, although, although I will, you know, the Great Lakes um, uh, far and away uh, surpass anywhere else I've ever been in the world as far as the state of preservation oh, of really? these sites. Yeah. So the cold, fresh water here in the Great Lakes uh, is a great environment to preserve um you know, the materials that a, a 1870s ship would be made out of wood, iron, you know, uh, and organic materials of all kinds. Um, so it's it's like putting uh, the wreck in a, in a big freezer. Uh, so it it, it, it it really does kind of freeze the wreck in time. Why is that? Is that is that because of the chemistry or no salt? What's the I mean, what's the deal with that? Yeah, all so a number of things. So number one, no salt. So that's much better for anything metal, right? Iron, steel, much happier here. Um, so for example, um, for a shipwreck, you know, from say the 1870s out in the ocean, 
all of the metal would be completely concreted and, you know, largely eaten away except the most robust things. And you just kind of would have an outline or a concretion of, of, um, things to show you what, what was there. Right. Uh, and then wood in warm salt water would be completely eaten away if it was exposed by little marine animals, teredo worms, uh, wood boring organisms that, that like to eat wood here in the great lakes. We don't have that. So, um, Again, you could have something that was sitting on the bottom uh, that was, uh, say, a 130-foot schooner with the mast still standing, with the lifeboat on the rail, uh, you know, virtually looking like it was sailing through the sand on the bottom. Uh, it's, it's incredible. You find that very, very, very few places in the world. And so we have that here, and it's preserved these wrecks like, like nowhere else. Oh, that's amazing. And if listeners are interested in finding out more about marine archaeology, we actually recorded an episode with uh, Stephanie Gondula of the Thunder Bay National Marine uh, uh, Sanctuary. Sanctuary. Yeah, we were we were colleagues for years. Stephanie's a great archaeologist. Um, we actually went to the same graduate program. And and uh, yeah, there's there's fascinating stuff out there for Wisconsin shipwrecks. Uh, I would recommend folks go to uh, Wisconsin shipwrecks dot org. Uh, which is the the state site um, that looks at the the submerged cultural resources here in Wisconsin. They've got some fantastic archaeologists on staff here uh, at the state of Wisconsin out of Madison uh, and the Wisconsin Historical Society, and they've done a fantastic job with documentation through the years. So a great place to explore that. But of course, shipwrecks are only one thing that that uh, we feature here at the Wisconsin Maritime Museum. It's so easy to get like sidetrack on the shipwreck thing. Thank you for doing that hard work. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. So, yes. We're one question into our outline and I've already got us off, off, way off. This is why you are executive director and I am nothing. Yes. Uh, so you do feature. So- You're assistant director. That's right. <laughs> uh, yes. Let's, let's return back to the museum. Uh, first of all, let's let's go Maritime Museum in Wisconsin. That is a little counterintuitive, right? Although there's a lot of shipping and things like that. Uh, but how did the museum get started and why is it cited kind of where it is? Yeah. So, you know, you would think like uh, a maritime in the museum in the Midwest would be a weird thing. But it happens that the Great Lakes uh, are one of the busiest, busiest shipping lanes in the world. Uh, and at, you know, the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, it, it, it was the ship bu- busiest ports in in the country were here on the Great Lakes. And when you think about it, uh, cities like Chicago, Detroit, Green Bay, Milwaukee, Duluth, they couldn't be here if it wasn't for the transportation superhighway of the Great Lakes uh, that allowed those places and the people that settled them um, to 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 have some way to get there and then have goods to get back out. Uh, so. Um, there are, you know, this, this is a very maritime place, uh, and Manitowoc is a very maritime community. So we're located, uh, about, uh, halfway between Milwaukee and Green Bay on that mid Lake Michigan coastline. And we've been a center, have been a center for shipbuilding, uh, since the early 1800s. So whether it was fishing schooners, uh, all the way up to, you know, 730 foot bulk freighters. Uh, over the years, uh, Manitowoc has kind of been that hub of shipbuilding in Wisconsin. Is there still shipbuilding that happens today? 
There is. There is. Uh, we still have an active um, uh, uh, shipbuilding community here. Uh, Burger Boats is still operational. They build uh, luxury yachts and tour boats and things like that. Uh, because ships got larger and larger, uh, and, and the shipyards were all on the river here, on the Manitowoc River, uh, you know, we kind of outsized ourselves. Uh, and so the major centers of shipbuilding here in Wisconsin these days uh, are Sturgeon Bay uh, and up in Marinette, uh, right on the, the Michigan border, uh, which, I mean, they still have huge contracts today. Uh, but we, we still do actively uh, have shipbuilding here and uh, the former sites of the shipyards have kind of retooled uh, and are uh, uh, used for other industries. Uh, so we have, um, the former site, one of the former sites of a shipyard, uh, now makes huge, huge cranes, uh, for shipyards and they assemble them here and then they take them out by barge. Uh, we have another company that makes windmill parts. Uh, and again, they assemble them here and they take them out by water. So we're still using the, the, the lake, uh, as that conduit to, to move goods, uh, in and out of Manitowoc. So when you were like the shipbuilding capital of the Great Lakes or whatever, yeah. um, like, so, so were these ships only for within Great Lakes travel or was this for, you know, they would go out to sea, I guess, through, I mean, eventually, uh, was it, would have been the St. Lawrence Seaway or the, depending on time, Erie Canal, whatever. I, I haven't gotten yeah. that far in Death of the Lakes of the Great Lakes yet to fully know all about that stuff. Um, but, but so was that what it was? Was it for all over or just for the Great Lakes? Yeah, mostly for the Great Lakes. Um, mostly for the Great Lakes because, you know, different kinds of ships are, um, are, are, are are going to be better for different kinds of transportation, but not necessarily. Uh, a lot of the, the vessels here uh, could have been used anywhere in the world. And in fact, uh, one of the, the features of our museum here is highlighting the submarine building heritage here in uh, Manitowoc. So during World War II, uh, when the U.S., when the Navy was looking for places to uh, contract to make uh, submarines, diesel submarines uh, for the war effort, Manitowoc was one of those places. Our um, uh, shipyards you know, were, were some of the, the most cutting edge in the country. And so we were able to quickly retool uh, to turn out these submarines very quickly during World War II. We actually built 28 of them right here. Uh, and uh, we have a Gato-class sub uh, here today that's kind of the central feature of the museum um, to uh, memorialize and to illustrate the submarine building heritage here in the Great Lakes. And so that's the, the Cobia? Is that the Cobia? That's the Cobia, yeah. And Cobia actually uh, was built out in Connecticut. So that was the other place that they were building these submarines. Uh, and so 52 years ago when folks uh, in Manitowoc came together and uh, uh, wanted to get one of these uh, subs to have here as a submarine memorial, uh, they looked around. They there was not a Manitowoc submarine available. However, Cobia was just being decommissioned, uh, and she had been in uh, Milwaukee as a training vessel. So when she was decommissioned, they towed her up here to Manitowoc, and she's been here ever since. We started out just you know focusing on that submarine building heritage, uh, and then over the years became the Manitowoc Maritime Museum, and then the Wisconsin Maritime Museum. So. Over the course of that 50 plus years, we've grown in size uh, with our facilities, but also in the scope of, of our mission and what we interpret. 
So I kind of feel as you were saying, first Manitowoc, then Wisconsin. You're like, next and then the, the world. world. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You never know. You could say you knew us way back when, when we were just the Wisconsin Maritime Museum. You know, it's funny, though, uh, that uh, maritime history, it, it's all pretty interrelated. You know, um, you can go to a maritime museum anywhere in the world. A lot of those same themes, a lot of those same tracks are, are going to, stories are going to be told at those places. But what's what I find really interesting is those local or regional things that developed uh, in particular areas. And so when I go to a, a different maritime museum, of course, I drag my kids to every maritime museum uh, we run across. Uh, but it, it's those regional differences that I like, how ships were built differently, the different trades, and kind of the different unique features of, of that history. And of course, here it's it's um, the, the submarines. And, you know, the story of turning out these submarines so quickly, uh, and within the matter of, you know, three or four months, they could they could start one of these things and get them launched. They were having people working around the clock uh, to build them. Uh, a, a lot of women, right? Because uh, uh, many of the the uh, the folks who traditionally would be on the line were at war, and so uh, it was you know a whole not just a whole town effort, but a whole regional effort. And then once they launched these boats to get them from Lake Michigan out to the Pacific, right? Any 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 guesses on on what route you would take to do that? Uh, the the one I have, all I talk about now is Erie Canal and St. Lawrence Seaway. So those that those are my guesses. Okay, those are both wrong. Both wrong. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> so you're in Wisconsin. No, I don't know. I have no idea. Okay, so you go the other way. So you go through the Chicago Canal. And down the Mississippi River. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. And because of these submarines, they were too um, deep to, to go through the, the canal and down the river as they were. They built a floating dry dock. So they would launch them here uh, and do their sea trials and everything out in Lake Michigan. And then they would put them in this floating dry dock that that kind of, you know, lifted the, the, the bulk of them out of the water. And then they took them all the way down to the Gulf relaunched them there and off they went to the Pacific. That is bonkers. That's awesome. <laughs> Think about the engineering that had to take place. Um, I, you know, it's, it boggles my mind just walking through the sub, the engineering to make, I, well, at the time, what was probably the most complicated piece of machinery in the world, right? Um, to, 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 to put something like that together, all the systems that needed to be there pre-computer, Right everything's digit, everything's analog, everything's, you know, knobs, gears and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but even just to launch these vessels, they, the shipyard was on the river. So you couldn't launch them traditionally, like bow to stern sliding in the water. So they side launched them. Uh, and if you, if you, if you go to our website, you can see these historic photos of these launches where it just looks like these ships were tipping over sideways into the river. It, it was it was uh, fascinating, uh, and it's it's fun to be able to retell those stories, uh, both of making the subs and then the stories of of what the subs did during the war and what Cobia did during the war. Um, she was uh, on four different war tours, uh, uh, 
saw a, a lot of action in the Pacific, um, seeking, uh, sinking Japanese vessels. Um, and it's, it's, it's just cool stuff. And, and this is, you know, one of my favorite parts, um, we've had volunteers and staff over the course of the last 52 years that have restored uh, Kobia uh, pretty much to how she would have been during the war. So uh, the electrical systems work, the radar works, the sonar works, the radios work, two of her four diesel engines still operate. So it, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, everything's still there and, you know, nothing gives you, nothing's a better kind of agent for storytelling than getting someone to walk through the space, right? Um, you can envision what it, what it felt like, what it smelled like, what, it, you know, the whole, the whole thing. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a really cool thing uh, and a really unique, um, a unique experience. Uh, so again, like we've been doing this for, for 52 years, but we're, we're always trying to offer uh, more ways for people to have access to the sub and to learn about that history. And and so I see on your website, people can actually sleep on the Cobia. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's one of our um, most popular programs. We've been doing an overnight program with uh, mostly scout groups uh, for many years. Uh, and so uh, pretty much every Friday and Saturday night, we'll have, you know, 65, 70 <laughs> scouts on there uh, sleeping in all the bunks. And, you know, we don't just it's not just a slumber party and we do programming in the evening. You get to crawl into all the nooks and crannies that you don't usually on the tours. Uh, and you learn uh, uh, about the history. You learn about the science uh, behind a lot of these systems. Uh, and yeah. And then you stay on the boat and you, you also get access to the museum before anybody else comes in in the morning, which is, which is always pretty cool too. Um, as you can imagine, last year was a bit challenging uh, for that program, 70 scouts on an enclosed tube uh, is not a, a, a socially distant experience, right? Um, however, what we did uh, to be able to let other people experience this uh, is uh, we <laughs> we started uh, our sub B&B program. Uh, so families can come and basically they they rent the boat for the night. Uh, and we have somebody on board who gives them a tour and who stays with them to uh, kind of host the whole experience. But it's it's your boat and uh, you pick where you get to sleep and your family can, you know, run around and, and uh, uh, you know, see what it was like to, to be on one of these boats. It's it's pretty cool. It's been very popular. I, I wish that I had known about that when I was getting married because I would have forced everybody to go uh, like have a wedding underneath. <laughs> That's so funny. Like we haven't had any weddings inside the boat. We've had them on the deck before, and we've had a surprising number of weddings. Uh, well, maybe not so surprising in the last year on our roof deck. Uh, we have a roof deck, and we also have a, a bar, of course, because it is Wisconsin. Uh, called the sub pub that we do up there in the summertime. So that's been a, a popular venue as well, whether it's for weddings or class reunions or just to uh, come and hang out uh, and overlook the river in downtown Manitowoc. Carolyn, we're going to have to talk about the specifics of your desire for a submarine <laughs> wedding later. 
Um, but so Carol and I both work at university. So one last thing I know. So you have these cool exhibits. Like you've already sold it to me. Not that this is a sales pitch, but if it were a sales pitch, I'd be on my way to Manitowoc. Um, but, but also people use museum for research, right? Like what kind of research do y'all do there? Or do people do there? Is that, is that historians and, and the like that come through or how does that go? Absolutely. So um, we have an outstanding collection. I mean, Kobe is kind of the crown jewel in our collection, right? Uh, but we have, you know, over 10,000 3D uh, artifacts, including 60 small boats. Uh, we have over 100,000 items in our archives. So a lot of the research is, uh, yeah, historians do, doing uh, archival research. Uh, it could be folks doing genealogy. Um, it could be uh, uh you know, kind of small boat, uh, wooden boat enthusiasts who want to come and see specific types of vessels we have. We have hundreds and hundreds of outboard engines. Uh, and and you wouldn't believe the number of people who are crazy about outboard engines. So um, looking at, at those kind of collections and, and, and everything in between. The shipwreck artifacts, we are the state repository for uh, any of these items recovered. Uh, from shipwrecks. So uh, we have an awful lot of those things. Uh, it is illegal to, to take things, but before the abandoned shipwreck act uh, in 1987, uh, it was kind of fairly common practice for things to, to be salvaged from the bottom. So there are collections out there uh, that, you know, divers took in the sixties and seventies and uh, they've been sitting in their basement. And so you know, bringing those back into the public sphere is something we're really interested in facilitating here uh, so we can share that with you and 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 everybody else. And again, if you can't, if, if you're not going to go out and dive on these wrecks, which is spectacular, you know, having those tangible pieces, those touchstones here in the museum um, to kind of uh, launch those stories, right, to, to generate those talking points is is really key for us. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, it, everything from archaeological to historical research, we, we, we do right here. Well, that sounds really, really interesting, actually. And uh, I can't wait to hear about it. But Kathy, that's not actually why we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The uh -oh. reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is ask you two questions. The first of which is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? This is a very important question. Okay. <laughs> we get more more questions about this, more feedback on this question than any question. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I'm 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 having an inner struggle right now, but I'm going to go with my my first thought, which is donut. Excellent. And then, uh, so team when I'm donut. in, uh, what's that, Carolyn? I missed it. It's just team donut is getting larger. It is. It's getting what much because all the donuts, but um, oh, <laughs> over time. No, that's not. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, uh, it's the the few the proud team donut. Absolutely, yeah. But so when I'm in uh, when I'm in um, or there's team like me, team yes, please. Uh, anyway, when I'm in um, oh, I already forgot it. Manitowoc, right? Um, and I want to no Manitowoc. Oh, I so close. Yeah, so close. I wouldn't even that close. Um, anyway, when I'm there, the Clipper City. Just say that we. That's our nickname, Clipper the City. Clipper City. I can do that. I can do the Clipper City. When I go to visit the Clipper City, um, and so I wake up early, go to the museum. Um, but before I go to the museum, I want to get a donut. Where should I go to get a really good donut? Uh, bakery on State. Bakery on State. I'm writing it down now. 
And I will put a link to it in the show notes at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 3737 because this is episode 37. All right. So tell me about bakery on state. Good donuts? Oh, yeah. But, you know, each of them is like five pounds. They're like, <laughs> you know, a, a good Midwest donut. Like, yeah, it's got some heft to it. Uh, they even do like the, the croissant donut, like the deep fried croissant, which seems, you know, too over the top to to really be a good donut but it's it's pretty fantastic (laughs) so you don't have to go to new york you can go to manitowoc that's that's it that's it i i hope these guys are listening and like send me over a whole bunch of donuts i mean they better should Uh, i agree we'll send them we'll send them the link and uh i mean the least they could do is send you some. They're like, oh yeah, the lady from the museum. We know her. Uh, all right, right. <laughs> we'll add to the order. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, and so you're executive director of the the Maritime Museum, right? What is it that makes you good at your job, right? We only have people who are good at their job on, with the possible exception of the hosts. And so, um, what is it? What is it that makes you good at that job? What are like some key skills for your type of work? Uh, I. And I hope this comes across from just this conversation we had have. Um, I find all of this fascinating, like maritime history, ship construction, storytelling, um, uh, you know, kind of the, the Great Lakes in general. It's fascinating stuff. I, you know, and I and so I, I think I translate that enthusiasm in a genuine way. Um, but at, so I think that makes me good at what I do. Um, and, um, just at being a good storyteller at the end of the day, whether we're an archeologist or a historian or a museum person, like it, it's, you know, we have these things we're really excited about it. So if we can effectively tell that story in a way that's going to get you excited about it, that, you know, you're going to book your trip to, to Manitowoc, um, then, that's the, you know, we've done our job. And at the end of the day, it's not just about getting you to come here. It's about getting you to care about, uh, these resources, uh, whether it's the historic resources, archeological resources, whether it's to appreciate the, the, uh, World War II history, you know, uh, and the way you do that is, is make people care about it. And, uh, that's not such an easy thing to do. Uh, but we've got a really talented team here, uh, whether it's interpreters uh, or facilities folks or collections managers that help to do that pretty effectively. So, yeah. Where can people go to find out more about the museum or your work? Is there a website or their social media feeds? What What's the best place to go? Of course there is. Uh, WisconsinMaritime.org. So Wisconsin, the state, Maritime.org is our website. And I'm sure we have Facebook, Insta, chat, Graham thing. All of the things that my 14-year-old sons would be appalled if they just heard me, you know, rattle them off right there. Well, we'll put links to all of the things in the show notes. <laughs> we've got, we've got, I've got younger people who work with me. They can help me identify the things and place the things into the appropriate uh, thing location. Uh, well, Kathy Green, Executive Director of the uh, Wisconsin Maritime Museum in Wisconsin, Manitowoc. You'll get it. There you go. You know, it's important we grow in life. Uh, Thank you for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
Well, that was awesome. I can't wait to, uh, once we travel again, if I find myself between Milwaukee and Green Bay, I will definitely stop at this museum. It sounds really neat. Yeah, it was, um, it, it's really, really cool. And it's neat to um, think about the, the people who lived in the Great Lakes along with the organisms, or lived and worked and um, sailed the Great Lakes along with the organisms that live in the Great Lakes. So that's fun to think about. <laughs> I think this shows something about your mindset. You're like, it's also interesting to think about the people in addition to the biota and the mayflies of the Great Lakes. But you're right. You're right. But so I thought that was really great. I, I you know, I, I knew obviously the shipping is a big industry. We do a little bit of work at uh, Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, but a lot of the Sea Grant programs do a lot of work with shipping in the Great Lakes. Um, but but I had no idea, like on the ships and that they sent them down to Mississippi. I was trying to figure out how they got them out. And uh, again, because we're reading Death and Life of the Great Lakes and it's all about the, the St. Lawrence Seaway and the Erie Canal, at least in the first part, I assumed it was that way. But no, through the Mississippi, uh, which is actually the second part of Death and Life in the Great Lakes. But we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, if you had read farther along, you probably, you might have been thinking. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. And I mean, the the fact that 28 of the submarines were made there, I mean, I don't know. I, I wanted to go look and see, you know, what proportion of all submarines made were made in Manitowoc, because that's just bonkers. So, yeah, oh, br- yeah. brief shout out to Titus from Wisconsin Sea Grant. Um, we'll put his link. You in. have to pronounce his last name if you're going to shout him out. Mm. Salheimer. Salheimer. Yes. All right. Why are we shouting out Titus? I agree. He deserves a shout out, but but because he works in Manitowoc and he has lots of really awesome pictures from there um, of the lake from there. So we can link to his. He's a uh, Doctor Fish SG on Twitter, but um, a good Twitter follow too. Good Twitter. Yeah, follow. yeah. Awesome. Shares lots of cool stuff. So and is a very nice person. And good at his job. Yep. All right. He gets a shout out. He gets a link in the show notes, which again, you can find at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 37, number 37. Uh, yeah, that's good. Um, let's see. I think that is about it for this week. Uh, Carolyn, would you like to do the credits or would you like me to do the credits? Uh, I will do it as soon. Go for it. Great. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois, Indiana, Sea Grant, and myself. Uh, We encourage you to check out the great work we do at iicgrant.org. And then we're on Facebook, Twitter, other social media at ILINC Grant. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Rini Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and, of course, our fixer. And congrats to you, Ethan. Uh, our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome um, and inimitable Quinn Rose. And I encourage you to check out her work at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, why don't you send us an email? Teach me about the Great Lakes at gmail.com. Or you can also leave a message on our hotline. We might play it on the air. That's 765-496-IISG. That's 4474. Or, you know what? Find us on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes and you can reach out to us there. That's the only time I tweet, basically, these days because it's bad for my brain. But uh, thank you for listening. And, of course, keep grading those lakes. I have a quick question not related. If you have two minutes, I was curious about it, but but I, you rightfully pulled us back to the you know real reason we're here. So um, are there... Uh, with You've... Dove in? That's not right. Dived around dove. the Great Lakes. Dove? Have, okay. have dove, yes. Uh, there's an English major. <laughs> um, anyway, you, you've done the scuba around the lakes. Uh, yeah. So on the ships, so you're talking about how well-preserved they are. Are, um, are like muscles attaching to them an issue now? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it really a big issue. Um, but, you know, as a diver, um, 
there are some some good things and bad things, right? The good thing is, um, so when I started diving up here 25 years ago, the visibility in the lake was not nearly as good as it is now, right? Um, and so, you know, a wreck that you could maybe see 10 feet on 25, 30 years ago, you can see 130 feet on. It, it's it's almost unlimited. It's like diving in the Caribbean um, if you hit it on the the right day. Uh, so visibility is much better, but instead of seeing a pristine shipwreck, you know, where you could read the name board and, you know, all that kind of stuff, you can see the outline of of a pristine shipwreck covered in zebra mussels, um, you know, and, and concerns, there's, you know, different kinds of concerns, the filaments where they attach um, can damage the archaeological surface of the wood, that top surface that maybe has tool marks or carvings, things like that, uh, especially when divers remove them. But then also mussels build up so deep, especially when zebra mussels, it wasn't so much the quaggas, but the zebra mussels, they'd build up so deep, they'd be five or six inches, you know, deep. And that actually would add a lot of weight, right, uh, on the wreck. So it could it could accelerate their deterioration. 